Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 50, brought to you by acmescience.com. On today's episode, I am joined by director, writer, and animator Dano Johnson and producer Seth Kaplan for a conversation about their work, Flatland the Movie, and the new Flatland Squared Sphereland, which you can find over at flatlandthemovie.com. Here we go. Sorry to jump in here, but before the interview starts, I want to remind everyone that if you want to continue to hear these interviews with mathematicians on Strongly Connected Components, I need you to head on over to Kickstarter and donate to the acmescience.com Kickstarter. Not only will you continue to hear Strongly Connected Components and Science Sparring Society and Relatively Prime and Acme Science News Now, amongst other things, you'll also allow it to become a full-time job for me your host and editor and producer, Samuel Hansen. And it would mean 26 new episodes of Strongly Connected Components next year, which would be awesome, wouldn't it? So once again, kickstarter.com, search for Acme Science and give me a little bit of money because that would really be great because I really want to be able to keep doing this for all of you. And now before the interview, let's hear a little bit from Flatland the movie. As well as the northern quadrant of Good morning, Hex. Good morning, Grandpa. And I'll now, fix our lunches. Here's today's circle axiom of the day. Ready? Configuration makes the man. Configuration makes the man. Did you memorize your laws of inheritance? I sure did, Grandpa. Isosceles triangles have baby equilateral triangles. Equilateral triangles have baby squares. Squares have pentagons. Pentagons have hexagons like me. And each new generation gets one new side until they get so many sides, they look like a circle and become a priest. Everybody knows that. Hello and welcome to Strongly Connected Components. I am your host, Samuel Hansen. And uh, for the first time, really, I have two people joining me on this episode. I have Dano Johnson, who is the director, writer, and animator of the new movie Flatland Squared, Sphereland, as well as the original Flatland, the movie, as well as the movie's producer, Seth Kaplan. Welcome to the show. Thanks. We're glad Thanks to be here. Uh, it's, uh, I'm, I'm very, very happy uh, to have both of you on. So I, I guess the first thing that I should ask here is 
how did you originally come to the realization that you were going to be making a movie about Flatland? Sure. Well, I um, both Dano and I had read the book in high school. And I initially had the thought while I was a film student at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles, and I was studying producing there. And uh, while I was there, you know, what, what people often ask what a producer does. And the quick answer to that question is that a producer is someone who develops a property into a motion picture. And so properties can be anything. That, they could be a script. It could be a TV show. It could be a comic book. And as a broke film student, I didn't have the money to go license, you know, a Batman comic book or a famous TV show. So what I did is I went to the books that I already owned that were in the public domain. And I actually remember pulling out a box of books, and, and the thinnest book in the stack on the top was Flatland. And so when I began to read it, I remembered I'd had to read it two years in my high school math class about how it excited me to add imagination into mathematics. And Dana was someone who I'd worked with. We both had a, had a past of working in the online learning field. And so when I began speaking about it with Dano, his excitement for the book and being a huge fan, and that's kind of where the project began to grow from. Yeah, I mean, uh, when Seth brought it up, I I remember I was first exposed to the concept of Flatland on Carl Sagan's Cosmos. He kind of walks you through the idea of going to a lower dimension, the second dimension, to understand how higher dimensions could work. And I thought it was a really exciting concept. I'd I'd been animating, like you said, in the e-learning world and doing some of my own little comedy shorts. But the idea, my dream was always to do something educational, and Flatland seemed like a perfect fit. Since I was a 2D animator, it would uh, it would work really well designing the two-dimensional world. And uh, yeah, I, I'm still so proud that uh, what we did is being shown in schools all over the world. Was that the uh, the intention of of these films, which which by the way are in around 35 minutes or so I believe uh, was that was that your basic intention was that these were going to be used as an educational tool in uh, school absolutely yeah we uh, we began developing the project and at first we we knew we just wanted to make the movie and we we weren't sure if it would be a normal feature-length film or if it'd be you know something shorter and as we were developing and I think part of this is because we both had backgrounds in in the education industry um, we began reaching out to teachers, and what became clear is that uh, a movie that would be under 45 minutes would be extremely helpful to math teachers. And so as the story was developing, it began to, you know, organically to what we thought would be appropriate with taking the novel, which, you know, really when you read the book, the last 30 pages are what are your traditional narrative, and the beginning is all set up. And so we began to translate that last 30 pages of narrative. Um, the page count kind of matched what teachers were telling us. And the way that I like to think about the movie is, you know, if you were to draw a line down the middle and have education on one side, entertainment on the other, I think the movie is a little bit more on the entertainment side. But we still made it with an eye towards educators because the movie is intended really to inspire young students about math and science. And, you know, teachers are always going to be the best at teaching the concepts, but we're hoping that we can use the power of cinema to help capture some minds in, into that area. Yeah, and I think the way when, when we read the book in school, the book is a launching point for ideas because the idea of higher and lower dimensions and how things work is so exciting. But I, I think the same applies 
to the movie. When we first premiered the movie in Austin, the first hands up during the Q&A were little kids, and they wanted to know all about the fourth dimension. I mean, that's held true every time we have a public screening. Uh, you know, it just launches uh, a lot of discussions, and you know, I think that's where the learning starts to happen. Say in in this most recent one, there are a few examples where there is a direct mathematical content in it, specifically talking about uh, using triangulation uh, to find distance, as well as uh, just talking about triangles and, and their degree measure and uh, how you could have a straight line that isn't straight. But there also seems to be a lot more mathematics that's hidden. You, Your backgrounds are very mathematical. There's a lot of uh, fractal imagery. And there's uh, other things that are just commented on but not entirely spelled out. Did you purposefully Im- embed those sort of things with the uh, thought that maybe it could be, say, a teaching moment for a, for a teacher if some student notices that and then brings it up afterwards? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I think... Um... We, when we were first designing the world for the first movie, we, you know, this is something, Flatland was only previously adapted in a 1960s film, and it's very primitive animation. And it's, a, it's very stylistic, but there was really no texture to the world. And we were debating how we should add texture so that people aren't just looking at blocks of colors. And uh, we hit upon the idea of incorporating these fractal patterns. And, you know, it just instantly became more warm and organic and people always ask about it afterwards. And it was really fun for me and the other artists to just, you know, experiment. We would literally zoom into the Mandelbrot fractals. I would find an interesting curve and say, oh, that, that can be a nose or that can be an eyebrow or that could be part of the landscape in the background and make a really giant kind of spiral out of these fractals. And you're right, there's, there's a lot more mathematical discussion in the books, uh, especially in the first book where they very slowly lay out, you know, point, line, square, cube, hypercube, and how many edges and how many faces there would be. And, you know, we we didn't want to have a scene that was that explanatory. We figured that's the power of the teacher afterwards to kind of go and and lead them through that progression. Um, But a lot of times, yeah, we, we... There are parts of the novel that we reference just briefly. One example from the most recent book is there's a chapter in the novel Sphereland all about uh, congruence and symmetry. And there are these dogs that face both directions, these flatland dogs. One faces left and one faces right. But one is more valuable than the other. So this one person has lots of the less valuable dogs until the sphere flips them in the third dimension and they become the more expensive dogs. And you know, it's a really fun concept, and I remember in uh, geometry class, we had a good discussion about that, but it didn't quite fit in the confines of our, our story that we wanted to tell. So we kind of just, just reference it briefly. We show these two uh, different dogs, the mongrels and pedigrees. So hopefully readers of the novel will, will instantly know what we're showing. But then the theme of congruence and symmetry, we work into the story itself. We have characters that are flipped in higher dimensions. You know, I, I think that'll get kids thinking about, you know, what if you were flipped in the fourth dimension and your left became right, right became left. So it is, it is tricky. It's part of the adaptation process of, you know, figuring out what's valuable to the teachers and maybe instead of specific examples, just use it as a theme in the greater story. Oh, divine oversphere, I apologize if I have offended. 
Divine? If I am divine from my dimensional nature, then so is every criminal and scoundrel of my kind. And whether I am a scoundrel or not, you have yet to discover. But a higher dimension implies higher knowledge and clarity. You propose a most intriguing hypothesis. Fortunately, I find experimentation irresistible. What do you mean? Oh, oh my, what have you done? Oh. Everything is, why it's reversed. To see the universe from a new perspective is a rare gift indeed. Please, put me back to normal. How do I fix this? Spherius, dear. Fixing your preconceived dimensional notions is up to you. As for your other predicament, a portal to the fourth dimension awaits at the center of Flatland. No, awaits is the wrong word. So hurry up. Be seeing you. Spherius, look out! Whenever I try to turn left, I involuntarily go right, and vice versa. It's as if the whole world has been flipped backwards. And when looking in a mirror, I notice my left and right features are reversed. Really? You look pretty symmetrical to me. Oh, we spheres get that a lot. One of the, one of the things that I really notice uh, was changed uh, in, the, in the first film to be precise is the depiction of of women now when when i read flatland i now i understand that it's a satire and that that it was playing on on the problems of of Vic, that victorian women had but the depiction of women in the original novel is is kind of nasty uh so was that something that you consciously decided that you're going to have uh the hero of your story be a female, given how females were portrayed in the original novel. Yeah, it, it, that was a very conscious decision. I mean, it was, I remember when I read the book in high school, that was a big part of the conversation about the book was issues of, of not only gender, but also I think classism and that the book itself is a commentary on Victorian society in England um, in the 19th century. When we began to develop the script from a creative standpoint, at first we tried to stay, you know, stick to as true as the book as possible. However, for, 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 for our modern world to depict women in that way requires, requires a lot of explanation. And at a certain point we made the decision this was going to be a bath movie, not a movie on history. And there are some really good points in, you know, in commenting on Victorian society. But at the end of the day, we didn't have enough time in the story to tell, make all those points. So we decided to keep it focused on mathematics. And then in addition, I mean, there is an unfortunate um, discrepancy amongst female, the perception of females in mathematics. And that's something that we have heard a lot of from teachers saying that needs work on. And so by making our heroine a female, we thought that would be a great way to show to young female students that there is a place for them in the mathematics world and to further encourage them to pursue their interest in mathematics. Yeah, and I'll just add that from a design perspective, when we were working on the first movie, you know, here I was trying to design these flatlanders, and then 
on top of that, making these line women, we, you know, we tried putting little eyes on them and a little mouth, and it looked like, it, it just looked ridiculous. And here we were trying to get, you know, Hollywood talent, Kristen Bell and other actresses involved in the, uh, in the movie. And I thought, you know, this, it's just not going to work. It's not going to look great. And, uh, at, like Seth said, the most important part of the story, uh, you know, we, we wanted to focus on the math. The more we tried to fit in kind of a civil rights <laughs> angle to the story, it, you know, it just wasn't working. So, but we're really glad that, uh, you know, people like Hex in the first movie and she was a, a natural pick for the, to be the focus of the, the second movie. Uh, you, you mentioned that you were going for Hollywood talent. You got it in the first movie, as you mentioned, you have Kristen Bell. You also had Martin Sheen. And the uh, most recent movie, you have uh, one of my favorite actors, uh, Danny Pudi from Community. And I, I was, I'm, a, I'm assuming that you, you're not working on, on a massive uh, budget for these, for these films. Uh, so I was wondering how you were able to bring in talent like that to do the voices. The number one thing is that all the talent we work with is extremely generous with their time, and they do this because they're into the project. They do this because they're excited, you know, to be a part of it. And so we feel really fortunate. And when, you know, everyone that we asked to come back on the on the sequel did come back, we got to add in some new fantastic actors. Danny Pudi, who has a lot of teachers in his family, has has a really really strong respect for education and was so excited to be a part of it. And on the DVD, if, uh, if you watch it, he has an amazing behind the scenes. It's really funny and cool. But in terms of also, I think another key, key way that we're able to make sure that we get top talent is that we only use absolute minimum of their time, which means, uh, especially for Dano, a lot of prep work. We actually record the, the, the entire scripts multiple times um, with friends of ours with, with other, and, and other actors and cut it together and do, and do simple animation, animatics, um, so that when we get the actors that are going to be reading for the parks, we record only the lines that we need, and it helps it go a lot faster. So it, it maximizes their time, and the preparation really pays off. I, I do, I do want to get a little bit more into the, the making of this. Specifically, what kind of uh, reaction did you get when you were initially trying to make this film? And then how did that reaction change after the, the first one came out? And it seemed, I mean, I've, I've seen mention of the original uh, Flatland, the movie, many times now over the last few years. So it seemed to do pretty well. Was uh, it easier to get this one made than it was the first one? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think in some ways it certainly was. You know, for the first film, there were a lot of challenges in the sense of we had no idea of what a two-dimensional world would look like. And we kind of had to define a lot of the design. And, and, you know, I think it's also important to mention um, Jeffrey Travis, who was, who was a co-writer and director on the first movie and served as our executive producer on the sequel. And him, me and Dano, I mean, we spent countless hours, Dano and I and Jeffrey have gone back and looked at some of the original ideas we have and, it was actually a much longer creative process to get the first movie made, but but the content Flatland the book has so many fans, and um, especially once we were able to attach the cast that we had, that there was definitely a lot of anticipation and I think appetite for it. Uh, with the sequel, it was great because we'd already 
kind of established ourselves in, in the space of doing the math education videos. H- however, the Spherland of the Book, there's a big difference in that it, it, it is actually not in the public domain. The, the copyright is still held. So in order, the first steps in getting that, um, in a creative sense, were actually somewhat simpler. I mean, Dano had mentioned Spherland to me, I think in the first conversation when we talked about Flatland, he had expressed interest in doing a Spherland movie, and, and, you know, his creative juices were already flowing in terms of the story and, and were already really exciting. But we, it took us almost over a year on the kind of legal and logistical front to secure the rights. I uh, ended up going to Belgium, where I met with the author's daughter, and she ended up being extremely helpful with helping us to secure the rights from, from the U.S. publisher who had it. It's kind of every project kind of has its own difficulties. And so I think on the, for two very similar movies, our challenges in getting them made were actually extremely different. Yeah, I think uh, from just an animation perspective, the first one was our, that was our research and development. We figured out what worked. Uh, you know, we made some mistakes. We, we waited until really the last half of production to get going on the 3D scenes. There's about seven minutes of 3D scenes. And you know, we felt very rushed near the end. We were trying to complete all these things. What we learned is for the second movie, we, we put all the 3D stuff up front in the beginning. Uh, and it was fortunate because we recorded Michael York, uh, who plays Sirius, first. So I was really able to block out those scenes and start working with the 3D animators early on. And really, we had most of those done by, you know, early earlier this year, January, we were wrapping up a lot of the 3D stuff. So, you know, we we learned some things and then other things became harder that we didn't expect because in the second movie there's almost 15 minutes of 3D. So, you know, there's even more environments that we need. And we worked with a programmer to develop this tool that would allow us to make the 4D geometry that you see near the end of the movie. But then we kept uh, having trouble finding a person to do that animation who could use the tool and knew what he was doing. So, you know, on a shoestring budget, you know, we're pretty much limited to somebody who has know-how and the time. And uh, we found a great animator actually in Germany, Christian Kohlhaas, who uh, did the 4D geometry you see at the end. And it's amazing that, you know, just with the Internet, I've never met him. I talked to him on Skype once, and we just communicated through email and, you know, uploading uploading movie files across the Internet. Really, the animation has really changed over the last, you know, 20 years and that you can do stuff like that. I was wondering if you found yourself uh, coming out with with any sort of lessons about uh, how to communicate mathematics that you might be able to uh, give to any of my listeners. Because, yeah, I mean, you came into this to this as as movie people, but now you are math movie people. And so I was wondering if if there's anything that you uh, learned that might be of interest. I mean, for me, what I learned and I think what what. Yeah, what I've taken away from it is that the the math itself can be extremely fascinating and interesting, but it's how it's applied to people that I think truly makes it it truly truly what captures people people's attention is that at the end of the day it's about you know individuals and their life experience and relationships and the challenges we all face, and because math is such a big deal and it's everywhere in the world it affects so much of our life on a daily basis but it's what it affects in our life that I think the consequences of it that I think will really draw people in emotionally and understand the necessity of math 
you know, in terms of the actual programs and, and the actual numbers, they're extremely important. But I think focusing on the emotion and the people is what's going to get people's attention with masks. Yeah, I really wrote the, the screenplay for Spheerland as kind of a love letter to science in a way. And science and math in terms of how they allow us to find our place in the universe. I mean, Hex essentially through the plot, you know, spoiler alert, <laughs> you know, discovers the shape of her universe and her place within it. You know, I approached her as, you know, a, 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 I wanted to portray a scientist in a very positive light that they use their tools not just to solve problems and build things, but to, to really help define the world. And, yeah, I, I hope people take that away from it. I do want to thank you for the uh, the greatest uh, line that I've I, that I've heard in a movie or television show or radio drama or anything in in quite a long time, which is uh, when Hex in Spheerland uh, screams out, "Look, I'd love to write all this up for a peer-reviewed journal, but there's no time." <laughs> well, I'm glad uh, you're, you're very welcome. Uh, <laughs> I thought somebody, uh, some people would appreciate that. That usually gets a good laugh at the, uh, we go to these math teacher conferences and show the movie and that gets a good chuckle. So <laughs> I, I, I can, uh, I can definitely understand why it's really, that is, uh, I, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed that line every single time I've watched this now. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, and, awesome. and, um, I do I do have one last question for for the two of you here. And that is is this all actually just a a long-term lead up uh to making a live action version of Rudy Rucker's Gonzo sci-fi uh book Spaceland? <laughs> well, let, let me say let me say first that that for all of your listeners they can get copies of both the original movie and the new movie by visiting our website. And it's, it's www.flatlandthemovie.com. That's F-L-A-T-L-A-N-D-T-H-E-M-O-B-I-E. And from there, you can go to Spearland, which has its own site, as well as the store where you can purchase the DVDs. And we also have a download edition. And, I mean, what this is all, for us, I mean, just like in, I think, one of the lessons of the movies, it's about the journey, not the destination. And making these films is, is really a labor of love for, for all of us. Uh, tomorrow, we're really lucky we're getting to show the film to a bunch of mathematicians here in Chicago. And there's nothing that we like more than having teachers or even students write up about how it's being used in the classroom. And so as long as there is a demand and an interest in us making these types of films, uh, we want to keep making them, and, and we are eager to do so. So uh, we'd love to hear from people. If, if you're using the movie or seen it, enjoyed us, please let us know, and please help spread the word. And yes, Rudy's book might be next. Um, we'll see kind of, kind of what we have the opportunity to make, but we, we definitely want to keep making movies like this. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just to follow up on what Seth said, you know, word of mouth really helps us. We find that a lot of teachers will recommend it to their friends, and sometimes students will hear about it online and then tell their teachers. So you know, it's definitely, it, we're totally a little independent film that's self-made and self-distributed. So the more the, the fans are uh, sharing it, the more likely we can make make stuff like this in the future. I'd really love to keep making educational stuff. There's so many different scientific and mathematical concepts that I think, you know, we could have fun with in a, in a character-driven story. You know, science is always just fascinating to me whenever I read nonfiction narratives about 
uh, how how scientific discoveries are made. It's, they're very interesting stories. They're not clear cut. There's uh, there's conflict. There's drama, and uh, and so Flatland is Flatland and Sphereland are just the jumping off point for us. So <laughs> so yeah, come to our website. We're also on uh, Twitter and Facebook. So tell us what you think, and uh, we'll uh, may the Flatland be with you. I don't know how to end that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any other uh, you know showings that you're doing that uh, say my listeners might be able to go to and and say ask questions at? Um, we actually, it's like, this is kind of our last appearance, if you will, of the year. We, we did a number of screenings at, at math conferences and some film festivals, but we will be announcing a few new film festivals shortly after the new year. And uh, we will also be at, I believe, the Joint Mathematics Association meeting uh, in San Diego in January. We're, we're sharing a booth with our partners at Princeton Press, so we definitely encourage people to stop by. And, uh, yeah, and I'd say, I would say definitely come to our website. We always list the, the next screenings there, and, and we will be announcing a whole bunch more screenings after the new year. So um, they're always fun events. Okay. Well, I want to thank you both so much for coming on and uh, giving me your time and speaking with me. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's a lot of fun. It, it has been. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> And that is all the time we have for this episode of Strongly Connected Components. Don't forget you can find my guest's movie over at flatlandthemovie.com. And if you want to catch some other links uh, to, say, their Twitter or anything like that, you can add on over to the blog post for this episode, which you'll find at acmescience.com. And while you're there, why don't you click the link to the acmescience.com Kickstarter, which will guarantee you more great interviews at Strongly Connected Components, which would be awesome. Please help. If you have any feedback, you want to suggest a guest that I might be able to interview once that Kickstarter works, send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. It's also my personal email address, so if you just want to drop a line and say, hey, how you doing? Please feel free. The music on this episode is the song Pie by Harden Firm and the song Shadows by SP12, who you can find over at opsound.org. This podcast is, as always, for all of acmescience.com's work, a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike licensed podcast. So please feel free to take what you heard here today and remix it into some sort of awesome dubstep trance house techno drum and bass thing. Other than the uh, segments from Flatland, the movie, and Flatland Square, it's Fearland, because I don't actually own the rights to that. So please, just my words and, and, and their words. That's awesome. So once again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you come back for the next episode of Strongly Connected Components. Oh, back the Kickstarter, please. Please.